It's February 15th, 1912, New York City. Two men walk up the steps of the Produce Exchange Bank on Broadway. The bank is well known for its intricate green ironwork and limestone facade. The early morning sun's rays glint off the brass fixtures on the wide doors. Above the entrance, an American flag flaps wildly in the blustery wind. The men go through the doors, held open for them by an elderly porter. They enter the huge lobby and walk across the vast expanse of white marble towards the mahogany counters. The men are dressed in dark suits, and one of them is carrying a large bag. It may sound like the beginning of a robbery, but it's not. These men are bank messengers and are simply here to cash some checks. The older of the two, Wilbur Smith, hands the checks to the teller, while the younger man, Frank Wardle, collects the cash. All $25,000 of it. That's enough money to pay 33 annual salaries at the time, or buy 385 brand new gas automobiles. When the bag is filled with the cash, it's so heavy that each man has to take hold of a handle to carry it. They struggle across the street and push the bag into the back of their waiting taxi. The men climb into the back seat behind the glass partition, their attention fixed on their precious cargo. Gino Montani, their driver, fires up the engine. He knows the streets of Manhattan like the back of his hand. For example, he knows that some of Broadway is still covered in rubble from when the Equitable Building burned to the ground in January, costing the city a cool $10 million. In order to get Wilbur and Frank back to their place of business as quickly as he can, he takes a different route, one that'll avoid Broadway altogether. This proves to be a fatal mistake. Morris Street is barely wide enough to accommodate his cab, but he takes it anyway. The walls of the buildings on either side hug the vehicle's wheels, but he's rewarded when he gets onto the almost empty streets of Trinity he cuts almost 10 minutes off their journey. On Trinity, they pass a graveyard and a Gothic church, its tall spires seemingly piercing the clouds above. An elevated train passes overhead, the track so low it almost scrapes against the cab's roof. The driver is so focused on making sure this doesn't happen that he only notices a bearded vagrant stumble into the street at the very last moment. Antani slams his foot onto the brakes, and the cab squeals to a stop, jackknifing across the road. The stench of burnt rubber hangs in the air, and from the cloud of black smoke thrown up by the tires, two figures emerge. They throw open the back doors of the cab and attempt to climb inside. The money, shouts Smith. They're after the money. The two bank messengers try to fight them off, but they're no match for these thugs. Punches rain down on their heads, breaking noses and bludgeoning skulls. Before long, both are unconscious and bleeding heavily, their white shirts stained crimson. As they slump into the back seat, a third man climbs onto the bench seat beside the driver. Move, he growls. Mantani, though, is too shocked to do anything. He doesn't move until a revolver is shoved into his ribs. 
there's a click of metal on metal as the gunman pulls back the hammer to show that he means business. He tells the driver, louder this time, to put on speed and keep going as fast as you can. Antani does as he's told, nervously shifting through the gears. In his haste, he speeds past three police officers who can't give chase, as the New York Police Department currently do not own any automobiles. Sometime later, the taxi is found by the side of the road. Smith, the elder bank messenger, is still unconscious. The Wardle has woken up. The driver is frozen in his seat, fear clouding his features. The robbers are nowhere to be seen. Nor, more importantly, is the money. $25,000. That's $675,000 in today's money. It's all gone. The case of the taxi bandits rocks the city to its core. The New York Police Department is under pressure to solve the brutal robbery and quickly. The city's best detectives work night and day. We can't catch a break. Sometimes, though, answers come from someone unexpected. In this case, that's Isabella Goodwin. Can the lowly police matron really blow open the biggest case of robbery the city has ever seen? It seems unlikely, given that a whole department of detectives couldn't. But that's the thing with some cases. From time to time, it takes someone everyone else underestimated to solve them. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're hot on the tail of Isabella Goodwin, and she uncover who's behind the most daring robbery in New York City's history? This case will take everything she's got. It'll push her to her physical limits. But great detectives like Goodwin never stop until they get their man. From Noiser, this is the case of the taxi bandits. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. It's the afternoon of the same day. A policeman escorts the bank messengers and the driver of the taxi cab to the nearest station, where they're handed over to Deputy Commissioner George S. Doherty. His mustache face darkens when he learns what's happened. Doherty hasn't been in the job for long, but he's come with a good reputation for solving cases. 23 years with the Pinkertons, the largest and most famous detective agency in the world, that'll do it for you. He's a heavyset man with dark, slicked back hair. He has the intimidating look of a boxer, but is skilled at laying on the charm for the press. At his first media event, he had warned the citizens of New York not to take the law into their own hands. Detective novels were coming into vogue and there'd been a rise in everyday citizens trying to replicate what they'd read between the covers of the latest Arthur Conan Doyle story. Doherty wanted to put a stop to the vigilantes and amateur sleuths of the city. He made it clear that he was going to be the man to clean up the streets for good. Sadly, he hasn't made good on his promise. The streets of New York are more dangerous than they have ever been. 
with one sheriff describing the city as as uncivilized as certain parts of the West. The papers had been urging the chief of police to replace his deputy with someone more suitable, someone more gung-ho. This brazen daylight robbery of the bank messengers might just be the thing to bury Doherty once and for all. Doherty needs the case to be resolved quickly, to show the public that he means business. He assigned 60 of his best detectives to the taxi bandit case. They start by fingerprinting the car. But the police have made a mistake. The taxi cab's been left on the street outside the police headquarters, unguarded. Curious passers-by have been grabbing the door handle to have a look inside the blood-stained cab. There's no way of distinguishing between Joe Public's fingerprints and those of the criminals. The car is now worthless to the investigation. Two days go by with no break in the case. In that short amount of time, bank messengers have started traveling with armed guards. Another bank on the east side is robbed, albeit for a much smaller amount. Wall Street bankers, afraid of being mugged on their way home from work, are lining up to file for licenses to carry guns. The city's on the brink of lawlessness. In desperation, Doherty tries to pin the robbery on the taxi driver, Montani. After all, he was the only one of the trio not to be beaten senseless. Why would the robbers leave him alone if he wasn't somehow involved? Doherty pulls him into a cell and questions him. He tries to get him to admit to being an inside man, but Montani is adamant. He has nothing to do with the robbery. A magistrate arrives soon after and demands Montani is freed, as the police do not have one scintilla of evidence against him. Despite the harassment, Montani is keen to help. He offers up a description of the man who joined him on the driver's seat. He believes the man was approximately 30 years old, about five foot eight and around 160 pounds. He had a round face, a dark mustache, and short hair. Pretty unremarkable, right? But luckily, Montani's able to recall one more feature, something that sets the man apart from others. One of his front teeth was made of gold. Immediately, the gold tooth makes Doherty think of Eddie the Boob Kinsman. Kinsman is no stranger to the police. He's a petty criminal, mainly known for boosting cars. He's also wanted in connection with a highway robbery in his native Massachusetts. Kinsman is street smart. He's been in prison a number of times before, and he knows how to play the game. If he was behind the robbery, he's never going to admit it. And so far, they've only got Montani's description to go on. It's not much, is it? Doherty can't believe it's even him. The deputy commissioner needs to think of some other way to find out if he was involved. But luckily, the police have quite a lot of intel on Kinsman. They know that he has a girlfriend, a dancer, called Annie Hull, or Swede Annie, as she's known when she's on stage. Hull is known to be loose with her tongue, particularly after a night in a club, and Doherty sees this avenue as their best chance at taking down Kinsman. 
The only problem with this plan is that he doesn't think Hull will spill her guts to one of his male detectives. Unfortunately, that's all he's got. He needs a woman, so he picks up the telephone on his desk and rings Mercer Street Station. When the call is answered, he barks the immortal words, Send me Mrs. Goodwin. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. At Mercer Street Station, Mrs. Isabella Goodwin is shocked at receiving a summons from the deputy commissioner. She's a 47-year-old police matron, not a detective. Now, hold up for a second. You might be wondering what a police matron is. Okay, well, the role of police matron was created for women in 1845. The job consists of tidying females' prisoners' cells and fetching them water when they call for it. In 1891, a female prisoner was assaulted by a male officer. In response, the role of police matron was expanded to deal with crimes involving women and children, to make them feel safe while in police custody. Okay, now, back to the story. At five foot one, Isabella Goodwin's role involves nothing more than the jobs you just heard, cleaning out jail cells and fetching water for thirsty prisoners. She's never been to a police headquarters before. What could Doherty possibly want with her? Perhaps he's heard about her undercover exploits. In the past, she has feigned different looks and personalities in order to expose rogue fortune tellers and quack healers. But that was a long time ago. Nevertheless, she's been sent for. And so, she will go. In her dormitory, she pulls on her trademark wool overcoat and matching skirt. She styles her hair into a neat bun before setting off to meet Doherty. The streets she passes through are dirty and loud. On the cobblestone roads, horses whinny as they transport paying passengers in their bulky carriages. The stench of manure is almost overpowering, as is the volume at which the street vendors shout, trying to draw passers-by to their stalls. The police headquarters is in the Little Italy neighborhood of Manhattan. It's an imposing sight. A series of ornate columns hold up an elaborately decorated portico. Above that, a dome, similar to that of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, seems to scrape the very sky. A large archway houses the main door through which Goodwin enters the station. Despite how big the building looks from the street, Inside, it feels cramped. 
too many bodies are making use of the space. Officers working traffic share a desk with captains from different departments. Criminals awaiting booking are handcuffed to radiators dotted around the central atrium. The canine unit housed here bark and whine loudly. It feels chaotic. Goodwin introduces herself to the desk sergeant, who regards her with suspicion. The only women they tend to get here come through the door in handcuffs. He studies her ID and, seemingly happy, leads the matron to a set of stairs. From there, he directs her to Doherty's office on the second floor. Outside his door, she pauses to collect her thoughts before knocking gently. Come, a booming voice calls, and she steps across the threshold. Doherty looks like a broken man. He's hunched over his desk, a cigarette clamped between his lips, pouring over a police report. His suit is creased, and his tie has been discarded altogether. When he sees who his visitor is, though, his face visibly brightens. He stubs his cigarette out and stands to greet Goodwin, offering her his hand. He motions to a chair in front of his desk, and Goodwin dutifully sinks into it. He tells her about the robbery and how he believes Eddie the Boob Kinsman is their man. He asks Goodwin to go undercover to gather information from Kinsman's girlfriend, Annie Hall. That's not what she's expecting. In her previous undercover operations, she had come up against fairly benign suspects. She's taken on swindlers who fled the moment things looked sticky. She'd pretended to be an insomniac and been healed, though not really, by a psychic healer called Miss Page, who was practicing without a license. These were low-risk operations. Kinsman and his gang are different prospects altogether. They had left the elderly bank messenger in a coma and disappeared with a ton of money. This is big league, hell. Her own life could be on the line. But Goodwin is known to be a tough cookie, unflappable in heated situations, despite her diminutive size. She reasons that the robbers could strike again at any time. If she can calm some of the fear on the streets by spending some time undercover, she will. She agrees, and Doherty looks at her with pleading eyes. Break the gang, he says. If you break this case, Nothing's too good for you. She assures the deputy commissioner that she will do all in her power to bring Kinsman to justice and takes her leave. Now, before Goodwin gets started on this case, it's important to know a little bit about her and kind of what brought her to this point. So let's go back a few years to 1889. Goodwin's life has not been a boring one. She had been married to a man named John, who himself was a policeman. One day, while on patrol, he allegedly abandoned his post and was forced to resign. After a lengthy legal battle, he was reinstated, though his superiors no longer trusted him. His behavior became erratic. He claimed a curse had been set upon him, and soon he turned to alcohol. Once, while traveling together, John managed to overturn the carriage he'd been driving. Instead of keeping his eyes on the road, he'd been distracted by the dog in the back seat. As he tried to calm the mutt, 
he lost control of the carriage. It mounted the curb and flipped over, landing on top of the pregnant Goodwin. John rushed his wife to the nearest police station, screaming for aid. It was touch and go for Isabella, but she managed to pull through. Tragically, the baby didn't make it. Future President Theodore Roosevelt, then police commissioner, insisted John be checked over by the Board of Surgeons. In 1895, Roosevelt told the New York Times that it had been reported that John was insane. Sadly, John died in August 1896, leaving Isabella Goodwin to look after her four children on her own. As was customary, widows of police officers were offered a role in the force. The post of matron was the only one available to women, but Goodwin felt compelled to take it. Her family were quickly running out of money, and she considered the work the police did to be noble. She passed a series of tests with ease, and of the 226 women who applied that year, she was one of 10 who were accepted. Theodore Roosevelt himself swore her in, assigning her to Mercer Street Station. It was here that she was first drafted into occasional undercover work, primarily in a high-end district of sin called the Tenderloin. All right now, let's jump back to 1912. Goodwin is about to go undercover. She's heading back to her old stomping ground, the Tenderloin District. She reasons that if she's going to find Annie Hull, that neighborhood's mean streets will be her best bet. Goodwin is unrecognizable as she shuffles along the cracked pavements of the Tenderloin. She's wearing a shabby suit, scuffed shoes, and a hat. She affects a limp and a hardened expression. In saloons, she sips liquor and inquires about servant jobs in a thick Irish brogue. She visits dances in the hope of bumping into Annie Hall, but comes away empty-handed. Finally, after a full week of searching, she gets lucky. She learns that Hall is living in a boarding house on West 21st Street. That night, Goodwin returns home, flushed with the first little victory. She has an address, but she's worried that from now on, things might become dangerous. She warns her family that she probably won't be able to see them until after the case is concluded, and they share an emotional parting meal. The next morning, Goodwin makes her way to West 21st. She finds the tenement she needs. It's a red brick, five-story building with large windows and fire ladders crisscrossing the front. Goodwin grasps the knocker and taps it on the door. A woman with a scowl lets down her face and sweat dripping from her forehead answers. Goodwin asks if there are any rooms available and is told no. The proprietor takes a moment to study Goodwin's shabby appearance and tells her there's a maid's job available if she's looking for work. Goodwin would be expected to scrub the floors, empty the garbage, cook, clean, run errands, all that for the residents. Goodwin accepts, and she's offered a measly wage. Knowing that folks in this part of town would never accept the first offer, she barters her salary up to six bucks a week. She still needs a room, though, 
So the owner lets her stay in a cramped space underneath the main staircase. Goodwin will later describe it as the wretched hole beneath the stairs. Goodwin gets started straight away. She stows her meager possessions and slips into a stained kimono. To keep up appearances, she hasn't brushed her hair for a week and it hangs matted and filthy on her shoulders. As she works, mopping the floors and dusting the light fixtures, she scopes out the house. To avoid suspicion, she goes about her work in a careless fashion, moaning constantly in that affected Irish accent. No one pays much attention to Goodwin, unless they need a parcel taken to the post office or some clothes dry cleaned. After all, why would they? She quickly realizes that most of the residents are dancers. They sleep during the day and they come out at night. So Goodwin cleans in the day and patrols the corridors by night. Cloaked in the darkness and fueled by coffee, she learns to avoid creaking floorboards and slips through the passageways like an assassin. She pauses at doorways and listens as the conversations from inside the room drift through the keyholes. As part of her maid's role, Goodwin regularly visits the individual rooms. In one, on the third floor, she finds who she's looking for, Annie Hull. The dancer is sitting on her bed, deep in conversation with a roommate, Myrtle Hoyt. On the dresser is a framed picture of Eddie the Boob Kensman. It's a small piece of evidence, but it's enough to show that there's a definite link between the dancer and the robber. From now on, she focuses her attention exclusively on the keyhole of Annie Hull's room. For the most part, it's mostly just inane, drunken chatter. Confessions of salacious things Hull and Hoyt had done that night, or discussing how much money they'd made. However, one night, Goodwin gets lucky. She's in her usual spot, crouching by the door, when Hull says, Well, Eddie the Boob turned the trick all right. In the darkness, Goodwin's eyes widen. She knows that this is certainly not enough evidence to take Kinsman down, but it is enough to prove that the undercover investigation is going in the right direction. She knows what she needs to do next. She must get Annie Hull talking about Kinsman. If she does, Annie might let slip something that ties her boyfriend to the robbery. Goodwin pledges to get Annie to open up to her. Unfortunately, she never gets a chance. The next morning, when she enters Annie's room, the bed is made and her toiletries have been packed away. Annie Hall has vanished. Goodwin heads back to the station, anxious to break the news to Doherty. Where could Annie have gone? I mean, did she just suspect that she'd been watched? Had Goodwin outed herself? Deputy Police Commissioner Doherty panics, though Goodwin tells him not to lose his heart. She reasons that Annie might simply have gone to visit her mother, or that Kinsman has treated her to a romantic weekend away. Doherty doesn't sound convinced, but he agrees to let her stay undercover a little longer. Turns out Goodwin's instincts were on point. A couple days later, Annie Hull swans in the front door of the boarding house. She's carrying a number of shopping bags 
and is dressed in a brand new designer frock with lace cuffs. A black velvet hat trimmed with rosebuds sits atop her head. She seems excited, but before Goodwin can even greet her, she goes up the stairs, drops her bags off, and goes out again. Goodwin hurries to Annie's room and is surprised to see her roommate, Myrtle Hoyt, lying on her bed with tears streaking from her cheeks. She's wringing the comforter between her hands and appears to be angry. Goodwin seizes her chance. What's wrong? She asks while she picks up some dirty laundry. Myrtle regards Goodwin for a moment, seemingly deciding if she can trust her. In the end, her frustrations went out. She tells the undercover matron how Kinsman took Annie upstate for a couple days to the city of Albany. There, he lavished her with gifts. He treated her to the finest hotel, a theater trip, and a bountiful shopping spree. On the last day of their trip, he took her to a fancy store called Livingston and Nussbaum's and bought her frock she'd been seen wearing that very morning. The words Goodwin heard Annie Hull utter through the keyhole are all the more significant now. Eddie the boob turned the trick all right. But is this conspicuous flashing of cash going to be enough to tie Eddie the boob to the robbery? If he hadn't been involved, where's all the money coming from? Goodwin doesn't understand Myrtle's anger. Is she simply jealous of her friend's new wardrobe? Or is there something else? She decides to probe a little further. It seems Annie has big plans. She's told her roommate that she's handed in her notice and is going to be moving out immediately. Why? Because Kinsman is taking her to start a new life in California. It seems that Kinsman's about to flee the city with the money. This would be catastrophic for the NYPD. If Kinsman escapes, the amount of money he allegedly stole could buy him a new life on the West Coast and a new identity. If he gets out of New York, well, the case is finished. So now Goodwin leaves the boarding house and rushes down the street to a bar. From there, she telephones Doherty and tells him what she just learned. In order to check the intelligence, the deputy commissioner telephones the department store in Albany. A clerk who works there remembers the transaction. As it was slightly odd, the man who paid, who matches Kinsman's description, had peeled crisp $5 notes from a huge roll held together with a thick elastic band. Right, now let's stop here for a second. The fact that Kinsman has this amount of money is odd. Police know that he works at the Nutshell Cafe on 24th Street. They also know that his salary wouldn't stretch to theater trips and shopping sprees in upmarket boutiques. And with the evidence building against him, the police know that if they can seize the $5 bills, they can check the serial numbers with the bank. And then all the bases for the arrest are covered. All right now, let's head back to the station. In his office, Doherty hangs up the phone and pumps a victorious fist in the air. He has all the evidence he needs to tie Kinsman to the robbery. Now he just needs to locate Eddie the boob. So he calls a meeting 
The team of detectives devise a strategy. Doherty immediately plants plainclothes officers in every train station and ferry port in New York City. They know Kinsman plans to leave the city. Ah, they just don't know how. So, they cover all their bases. It's costly and a drain of the precious resources available to the police. Doherty hopes he's doing the right thing. Four days later, he is rewarded. It's midday on February 26, 1912. A taxi cab pulls up near the door of Grand Central Station. The driver runs around the side of the carriage, splashing in deep puddles, and pulls the door open. Two passengers emerge, and the driver is handed a generous tip for his service. As the driver pulls away from the curb, the figures have already been swallowed up by the huge crowd waiting to enter the train station. It's raining cats and dogs, but that hasn't stopped Eddie Kinsman and Annie Hull from wearing their fanciest threads. Now inside, Kinsman folds his umbrella and strolls across the marble floor of Grand Central Station. He's wearing a brand new tailored suit. A trilby rests on his head and a diamond ring glints on his finger. And Annie, Ooh, she's dressed up to the nines, too. She walks arm in arm with her new beau, wearing a figure-hugging dress and a shimmering pearl necklace, her high heels clacking on the floor. While they wait in line for the ticket booth, they glance upwards. Grand Central Station is still being renovated, but the ceiling is finished. It's been painted blue, and tiny lamps have been installed to resemble the night sky's constellations. It is beautiful, awe-inspiring. Kinsman and Hull smile at each other. Their new life is just moments away from beginning. Next, shouts one of the ticket office workers. Kinsman steps up to the desk and smiles his most winning smile at the clerk. What time does the next train leave for California? He asks, as he produces a wad of cash from his pocket. And how much for two tickets? It's at that moment that four officers spring from their nearby hiding place. With weapons drawn, they order Kinsman and Annie to get on the ground. Annie does as she's told, but Kinsman remains standing. His eyes flit around the busy station, searching for any means of escape. A crowd gathers as he quickly realizes that he has no option but to do what the cops have told him. Slowly, he gets on the ground beside his girlfriend. They're handcuffed, and Kinsman's wad of money is seized. The police congratulate each other and phone in the good news to Doherty. Eddie the boob has been caught red-handed. Outside, Eddie Kinsman and Annie Hull are bundled into a taxi cab and taken to the police headquarters. Rain lashes against the windows. Peals of thunder can be heard between the blinding flash of lightning. It's suitable weather to herald in a dramatic moment in the taxi bandit case. Kinsman's left to stew in a cell for a while, while Doherty devises his interview strategy. When he's questioned later that afternoon, Kinsman sings like a canary. According to Eddie the Boob, 
The whole scheme started at the instruction of Gino Montani, the taxi driver. This comes as an enormous surprise. True, Doherty had pulled the driver in at the start of the investigation, but that was to show the public that the police were doing something. No one, not even the deputy commissioner, actually suspected Montani at that time. Eddie tells the police that Montani wanted to purchase a cinema on Avenue A in downtown Manhattan, but had been priced out of it. He engaged the services of a man called Jess Albroza, who he knew from a previous job. Albroza agreed and brought Eddie the boob in as a co-conspirator. They planned the heist in the back room of a tumble-down cafe called The Arch. Joseph Lamb, a dishwasher there, listened in and asked for a piece of the action. He had been the one who dressed up as a vagrant and drunkenly stumbled into the path of Montani's cab. Albrazo also brought in a fourth man, Matteo the Bluff Arbano, to take care of the bank clerks. Once they had the money, they'd gone to the Nutshell Cafe to divide the loot. Remarkably, while the rest of the robbers were otherwise engaged, Matteo the Bluff Arbano double-crossed him, making off with $10,000. He would, however, get his comeuppance a week or so later when he was arrested in Havana. Based on Kinsman's explosive testimony, the NYPD brings in Jess Albrazo, Matteo the Bluff Arbano, and Gino Montani for questioning. All but one of the criminals admits to their crimes. Montani, the taxi driver, is the only one to plead innocence throughout the questioning. Why, he reasoned, would he give a vivid description of Kinsman if he was in any way linked to the crime? No sane man would do such a thing. But perhaps there's another reason why the finger is now being pointed at the taxi cab driver. Now, listen up. You see, corruption was an ongoing scourge of the New York City Police Department in the early 20th century. There are rumors that Doherty's deputy, Lieutenant Riley, was crooked, that he was in cahoots with Eddie the Boob and Jess Albrazo and demanded $5,000 of the stolen money. In exchange, he promised to throw off the investigation, and if they were caught, he'd get them a reduced prison sentence. Nothing was ever proven, but if the outcome of the Taxi Bandit's court case is anything to go on, it certainly seems like someone was pulling the strings in their favor. The judge sentences Kinsman and Abrazo to a measly four-year stretch for highway robbery and assault with attempt to kill. Montani, meanwhile, has the book thrown at him, 18 years of hard labor at the notorious Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Sounds a bit suspicious, huh? Almost like Montani was the fall guy. The bank from which the money had been stolen never found most of it. Was that because a chunk of it had immediately gone to Lieutenant Riley? The sad truth is, no one will ever know. The bank simply gave up looking, and so did the police. Eddie and his gang had been rounded up, and that was deemed good enough. It's May 18th, 1912. 
It's been a couple months since the conclusion of the taxi bandit case. Isabella Goodwin is sitting opposite Deputy Police Commissioner George S. Doherty, who's in a celebratory mood. He lavishes praise on her for her starring role in bringing the crooks to justice. At the conclusion of the meeting, he reaches into his drawer and sets an item on the desk. Goodwin gasps when she sees what it is. It's a gold detective shield, the first ever presented to a woman in New York City. It's a huge moment. Her salary immediately jumps from $1,000 per year to $2,250 in line with her male colleagues. Newspapers clamor for an interview, branding her the best-known woman sleuth in the U.S. But Goodwin is not interested in fame. Instead, her whole being is invested in catching criminals and furthering opportunities for women in the police force. Thanks to her relentless drive, opportunities do arrive, and quickly. In 1918, Goodwin watches on as the first six female police officers in NYPD history are sworn in. In 1921, she receives a precinct of her own. It's called the Woman's Bureau and is housed in a bright, spacious building in Chelsea. There's a piano in the main room, along with an expensive rug and vases of flowers. The building houses a division made up of 26 female officers. They are charged with overseeing cases involving sex workers, runaways, truants, and victims of domestic violence. Cases where the women involved are more comfortable talking to female officers rather than their male counterparts, who can be intimidating. By the time she retires, after 30 years on the force, Goodwin has inspired a whole new generation of female cops. Today, there are around 6,570 women on the NYPD's 36,500-member force, or about 18%. Perhaps the most fitting epitaph comes from the New York Herald, from an article written in 1921. Quote, There are many a six-foot detectives with a gun on his hip, who does less valuable work for his $3,300 a year than Mrs. Goodwin, a slight, quick-moving little woman whose brain more than keeps pace with her body, end quote. And while the names of the criminals involved in the case may have been forgotten, Isabella Goodwin's lives on. Her use of cunning and her sheer doggedness when on a case are fondly remembered and aren't showcased anywhere better than in the case of the taxi bandits. Next week on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in 1970s Paris, France, on a manhunt to track down France's public enemy number one. Robber, murderer, kidnapper, master of disguise, and serial escapee Jacques Mayrine has made a career of violent crime, and he's been a thorn in the side of eminent French detective Maurice Bouvier for far too long. When Marie escapes from a high-security prison in Paris, 
it's Detective Bouvier who's sent to catch him. The only problem is, when the two men last met, the gangster vowed he would come out shooting. All that Detective Bouvier can hope is that he gets his own shot in first. That's next week on Detectives Don't Sleep. <laughs>